0: This evening we turn to God's Word as we find it in Paul's letter to the Galatians, and Galatians chapter 6, our text as you have it in the bulletin, consists of the first two verses of chapter 6 of Galatians, we're going to begin to read at verse 22 of chapter 5, 5, 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law, that is, there is no law that condemns those virtues. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the spirit, that's your claim, let us also walk in the spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Let every man, For every man shall bear his own burden. Now that does not contradict verse 2, which says, bear ye one another's burdens. But the apostle is saying, and if you and I don't bear each other's burdens, then we will be judged alone for not doing that. We will bear our own guilt and burden for not bearing others' burdens. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have, therefore, opportunity, let us do good unto all, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand, as many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, talking here about the Judaizers, they constrain you to be circumcised only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ, that is, from their from their relatives, they were of a Jewish extraction, and they shouldn't be associating with the uncircumcised, so they wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised so they could say to the relatives, oh, we're not associating with the unclean, we're associating with the clean, they've been circumcised. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh, that is, to their relatives, lest they be ostracized. They don't want to suffer for the cross of Christ. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And he's talking, of course, about the scars he has as the Jews, the apostate Jews, stoned and whipped him. Brethren, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your you, spirit. Amen. Our text as stated, consists of those first two verses of chapter 6. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ." When one thinks of Paul's letter to the Galatians, then one immediately thinks of its grand theme, justification by faith alone, which has to do, of course, being counted righteous on the basis of Christ's atoning work alone and putting one's confidence on his work alone and not in one's own works, and lives. Justification by faith alone, a grand theme, a grand doctrinal theme. But let's understand that Paul emphasizes that doctrine at the the beginning of this epistle in the interest of a grander theme, The grandest theme of all the scriptures, salvation by grace alone, by sovereign grace alone, contrary to all of our deserving and simply by the good gracious will of God and by his power. The grandest theme of all the scriptures, as it has to do with Christ and his work, beloved, is that grace sets free. But grace does not only set free from the guilt of sin. It does set free from the guilt of sin. But grace also sets free from the power of sin the one having to do with justification, the other having to do with sanctification. Ye are new creatures. We read that. Ye are new creatures. That's the work of sanctification, newness of life by the power of the Spirit. And the Apostle Paul, in the book of Galatians, concludes his epistle with an emphasis upon the doctrine of sanctification and how holiness of life is is to show itself, knowing full well that having set forth the doctrine of justification by faith alone and grace alone, the devil would get into some and say, ah, that means we may live as we please. We're saved. Sins are paid for. Now we don't have to worry about how we live. How we live is of no real concern as if that's the logical conclusion of the doctrine of justification by faith alone and by grace alone. And Paul is saying, not on your life. The doctrine of justification by faith alone and grace alone does not mean now you may go and live as you please. There is a life that you as a saved person are called to live not to justify yourself, but to show that you have been justified and you understand your justification and are thankful for that justification. Because if you don't, and if one does not, the only conclusion a man can come to is, grace has not really taken hold of that man. He has not been set free from the power and rule of sin or he would not justify his living in sin. That's, you see, the emphasis of the last two chapters here in Galatians. That's why I began to read at verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so on. That's justification. That's sanctification. That's the life of a man who has been set free by grace, from the power and rule of sin. What the apostle is making known here is that there is this calling to live unto God, and I suppose to live unto God in love, and I suppose you could say verse 10 of our chapter, chapter 6 is really in some ways the whole summation. summation. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all, but especially unto them who are of the household of faith, those who are of the body of Christ. You see, the Holy Spirit, beloved, as he works in God's own, makes us one body. Makes us what's called the body of Christ. And we are to live together as the body of Christ. Christ and in light of what Christ hath done for us we are under obligation to be of service to Christ and how does one serve Christ when Christ was on earth beloved he ministered unto his body I come not to be ministered unto he says I come to minister unto not to be not to be ministered unto but to minister to you And in the upper room, he put a towel, an apron around his waist and washed their dirty feet and said, as I have done to you, you must now do one to another. I am going into heaven in time and leaving this earth. How will I minister unto my body? You may say by his Holy Spirit, that's true, but I will also minister unto my body by members of the body, beginning with you my disciples who become apostles, and then you as apostles teach others to whom you minister that they are to do likewise, ministering one unto another, you see, in love as Christ hath ministered to us and being the tools and instruments of Christ to minister to his body, one to another. But before we get into the text, let me just say this as well, that for us to do that, to minister one unto another in love, and to keep the exhortation of our text, there are certain things we must be free of, what you read in verse 26, just preceding our text. We're, going to, we're supposed to walk in the Spirit. But to walk in the Spirit, beloved, let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Let there not be a spirit of arrogance and of a desire for attention and a willingness even to be abusive of others and promoting ourself because that spirit that envies others and wants to in some ways bring others down so I may raise myself up is an evil spirit. And when one has that kind of an arrogant, self-serving spirit, one cannot possibly be ministering unto others as a disciple of Christ and imitating Christ we must be rid of that spirit and rid ourselves of that kind of a spirit through prayer, of course, and repentance. And only then can we possibly keep the admonition of the text in verses 1 and 2 of 6. Our text, you understand, is diametrically opposed to what precedes it, being desirous of vain glory and provoking one another and wanting attention ourselves and this spirit of being self-serving and belittling of others. The text, beloved, is grace in action. A man who has been graced ought to be a humble man that the likes of me has been saved, moves me to gratitude and humility and Lord Jesus, as thou hast saved me, how can I be of service to you? And Christ says, this is how. If a man be overtaken in a fault, he who are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, and bear ye one of his burdens, and so fulfill my law as your Savior and your Lord. So with that in mind, beloved, We take this text under the theme Bearing One Another's Burden. Bearing what? Bearing them how? And bearing them why? The main admonition of our text. Is found in verse 2, bear ye one another's burdens. It's in some ways the summary of what you read in verse 1. The man will be overtaken in a fault, ye who are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. And restoring such a one in the spirit of meekness means you bear one another's burdens. That's how you're going to restore others, you see, in the spirit of meekness. Verse 1, in some ways, explains what burden the Apostle has in mind. And the burden that the Apostle has in mind here is not the burden of grief and sorrow and of trial and of anxiety and all the rest. That's not his emphasis Here. That's not to say, of course, that we are not we are to bear those burdens as well one with another. There are other passages in the scriptures that make that very plain. Rejoice with those who rejoice and grieve with those who grieve and comfort ye one another in all your trials and your afflictions and 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 tests of faith and all the rest. There are other passages in Scripture that deal with that. That's not what the Apostle has in mind here. The burden that the Apostle has in mind here is what he has spoken of in verse 1 by using the word fault, ye who are overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritually restored, such an one. And that fault is a word that has to do with transgression and trespass. Fault is not here simply, well, a certain weakness of, of character and a mistake that someone has made so that in some ways it is a minor matter. That word fault could better be translated or just as well translated trespass. In other words, wandering into an area that is forbidden that God has forbid one to wander into. One trespasses on property that he does not want one to wander into or trespass into, like our first parents, you know. Here's the tree of the fruit, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't go pick that fruit. It is forbidden you. And she went to gaze on it anyway. And the serpent was there, and she took the fruit, and with devastating consequences, as you know, she trespassed. She partook and and ate the forbidden fruit. That's what the apostle has in mind here when he says a fault. He has in mind sin Now, and error. Now, when he says fault, that's not to exclude the error of, of doctrines that If one is snared by a false doctrine, you who are spiritual should seek to restore such in one to truth. That certainly would be included. After all, this is a passage that's found in a book that deals with an assault upon the doctrine of justification by faith alone and based upon Christ's atoning work alone. The Judaizers and the apostle has 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 addressed that and he has given to the New Testament church this epistle exactly so that in times to come that error could continue to be addressed as he knew that that doctrine would continue to be assaulted. All you have to do is talk about the Roman Catholic Church as the Christian church apostatized over time and how the Reformation had to come into being to put the church back on proper course with respect to justification and by faith alone and by grace alone. And so there are still, of course, those errors that must be addressed if a man is overtaken by some error of, of doctrine, then you who are spiritual should, should seek to restore such a one and put him back on the tra- track of true doctrine. Let me just make one instance. Young people going to college and they come out of our Christian schools, and you may be assured whatever college they go to, even if it has something to do with Christianity in its past history, they'll be confronted by the theory of evolution in some form or other, and there will be an assault upon the integrity of the scriptures in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that it could not possibly have occurred as you read, in the scriptures in six days, 24-hour periods, God simply saying, let there be, and there was. Look at all the geological evidence. Look at all the biological evidence. One cannot deny that things took a long period of time, millions of years, and developed from the simple to the complex. And of course, it's an insult upon the integrity of scripture. And such men, even if they are teachers in a so-called Christian college, willfully ignore what the Apostle Peter says in his first epistle, as if all things have continued from the beginning as they were, forgetting, of course, about the epic of the flood and how that brought to pass really what amounted almost to a whole new creation. And in the light of the flood, one can explain many things of the geological and fossil record and all all the rest. So, one begins to be overtaken, enamored by the theory of evolution in some shape or form, and begins to question the integrity and trustworthiness of Scripture. One takes the Scripture reminds one what about the flood and the impact of the flood upon the whole of creation. Nonetheless, that's not the emphasis here. The emphasis is upon what we call sin and immorality, and that which is displeasing to God in the way of sin and immorality. That's the context. We read verse 22 of chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, but prior to that, the apostle has said this in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, and so on and so on, murders, drunkenness, revelings, such like of which I tell you before that they who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are the faults. Those are, you understand, the transgressions, the trespasses, the partaking of that which is forbidden, as though we are wiser than God, and we will satisfy our appetites, deceiving ourselves that really we will not do ourselves so much damage if we just imbibe in a little of this or a little of that. Striking, you know, where that list of sins begins here in, in Galatians chapter 5. Adultery fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, those are all sins of a sexual sort, written in the first century that might as well have been written, beloved, in the 21st century. You talk about assault on morality and assault on godliness, and you know as well as I what our society is trying to impress home, and what the what Satan is using is the sexual assault. It seems always to begin there. He knowing how weak we are when it comes to re, to refraining from that which has some sexual perversity, a besetting sin. So easy. It speaks of. Adultery, sin within the marriage bond, and fornication, sin prior to the marriage bond. And it's called corruption, of course, and it's called defilement. And how susceptible we are to that, each in his or her own way. There is a whole smorgasbord of those kinds of sins out there. Pornography. And how prevalent it is. And what an easy access we and our young people have to it. You know it as well. Some have you, may perhaps the device in your pocket as you sit here this evening. And all you have to do is hit a button and go through a window and a door. And there it is in all of its living color. And one may take one look and then back out. And then I think I'll take another look and maybe another, and one is snared. That's one of the sins, the faults that the apostle has in mind. It was as prevalent in the first century as in the 21st century But of course, Satan in the millennium has increased his ability to confront us with this sin to our felling and to our shame. But That's not the only sin. There may also, of course, be sin within business and one is not honest in his business and one takes financial risks because one has suffered certain losses and perhaps the first risk doesn't work out so well, so take another risk and maybe now now it's time to go to a a casino and throw the dice and maybe I'll hit it and be able to pay off all, all my debts at one fell swoop and one stumbles and falls and becomes snared by what they call gambling, or is known for dishonesty. That also is a fault. Drunkenness, of course, alcoholism. And one is consumed by that which one has consumed. And one is snared. And the list goes on. We could list any number of these of these sins. But let me just remind you, there's also the sin of the tongue, gossip, maybe vulgarity. Don't forget the sin of gossip, beloved. We may find that we tend to want to talk about this and that and when a person opens his or her mouth, it's too often in a belittling or a demeaning fashion to point out others faults and weaknesses, rather than to edify and to build up. One can be prone to that and have something to say to you, to say to me, to say to others. And one is being ruled by envying in the way to bring another down is to the fault and then lift oneself up, as it were, by the Same token or or vulgarity, we begin to blend in with the world and speak like the world because we're working with the world and we don't want to be too distinctive and separated as those who are identified with Christ Jesus. These are some of the faults that he has in mind. These what we call besetting sins in time. And we are speaking here not simply of hypocrites in the church, you understand, and unbelievers that they are in church and when they're in church they put on a certain suit and appearance and they can speak in a very pious way and seem very upright, but when they go out into the world then they are just like the world and what they do in private is not known but to them and to God and it's not pleasing to him at all but it's hid from the eyes of others. We're not talking, beloved, about that. The apostle is not talking about the unspiritual, the carnal, in the congregation, though they may be there. He's talking here about believers. Believers, beloved, can fall into these sins. All I have to do is mention a few names. You know Noah. You've heard of Noah. You know of his sin. Drunkenness. He planted vineyards. I don't think that was the first time he drank too much. I'm afraid that with Noah that became a way of life until he became so drunk that he finally made a fool of himself in the eyes of his children, perhaps his grandchildren. He who consumed alcohol in time was consumed by it and was overtaken by this fault. Abraham. He didn't lie just once about Sarah, you know. She is my my sister. Later. He lies about Sarah again. She's still my sister. He didn't seem to learn. He had a weakness in that regard. And the list goes on. David with his sins. And all we have to do is mention Samson with his Delilah, with whom he sinned once. And then he sinned twice. And then he sinned a third time. And then he went back a fourth time. And what was his end? And what was the consequences of his foolishness and his sin? He was overtaken by a fault. Now, these things you understand the apostle has in mind. And concerning such, he says to you who are spiritual, to restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. These the, I made a list of men from the Old Testament, but You could go to the New Testament as well and consider Paul's letter to the Corinthians and he makes very plain in his epistles to the Corinthians that there were many in that church in Corinth which was known for its immorality who had fallen into various sins as well and he was calling the the church, of course, to discipline them in a proper way. Now he speaks of being overtaken by a Fault, and then he says, Bear ye one another's burdens. In other words, these faults become a burden because he's speaking of them as a certain kind of crushing weight. Sin as a weight that falls upon one and renders one spiritually incapable of making progress and renders one spiritually powerless to be of benefit to others to say nothing of himself. And so it's called, this fault is called a burden due to the crushing weight of the sin, if you will. And he speaks of those who are overtaken by this fault. That overtaken is a pictorial word, and the picture is that of a predator who is with craft, following prey, like a leopard following an antelope with its eyes as it crouches and is ready to pounce when it can to bring to an end the life of that antelope. That's the picture. And he speaks of those who are overtaken because there is the evil one who has pursued them like a predator, and it even has to do with being overtaken with a certain kind of surprise. But understand that when he speaks of being overtaken by surprise, he does not mean that one has just been walking in a certain way, in a rather good way, and suddenly, you know, the sin just pounced on me. It came out of nowhere, and I can't help it that I'm now overtaken and powerless to make any spiritual progress. The sin was out there, and it simply overtook me. No, no, he's talking about those beloved who have been overtaken by sin because they have been spiritually careless. It's the picture, you know, of a herd of antelope out in the African veld And there are those who are adult antelope and they're feeding on grass and there's some taller grass off to the right of them and maybe you may even say greener grass, but the adult experienced antelope stay away from that taller, greener grass because they know that's where leopards are likely to hide themselves, waiting to pounce. But an adolescent antelope sees the taller, greener grass, and heads that way anyway. What do the experienced antelope know about these matters after all? I want the taller, greener grass, and off he goes. And sure enough, he gets about knee-deep, and suddenly the leopard pounces, and he has his meal for the day. He has been overtaken with a certain, you might say, surprise, but he has been Careless, rather than following the example of the aged and experienced of the family of the antelope. Why listen to them? What do they know about life after all? The surprise, beloved, is the power. Not that one is overtaken if one is spiritually careless. The surprise is the power of the sin as it gets hold of one and begins to rule one in every aspect, aspect of one's life. So that one cannot seem to free himself from that sin, either because he doesn't seem to be able to, or from a certain point of view, he really doesn't want to. He's enjoying it too much at the moment. You who are spiritual must be on the alert and seek to restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. That's what this apostle is saying, this calling, you see, to be of use and to be of assistance to members of the church who have been overtaken by sin and rendered, from a certain point of view, spiritually powerless and are being crushed by the weight of that sin speaks to those who are spiritual. Now, when the apostle mentions and refers to those who are spiritual, he does not mean you who are of a superior spiritual sort, and you are to view yourself as being of a superior spiritual sort. By the way, I should say this as well. He, He addresses here, the whole congregation, not simply the office bearers. That's interesting. Of course, office bearers have a special calling when it comes to those who are living in sin, in an unrepentant way, and to address such members in love and with wisdom and the word. But the apostle is making plain, it's not simply the calling of office bearers, it's also the calling of the members of the church, you who are spiritual. And by that he does not mean those who are of a superior spiritual sort. After all, this is what he says in verse 1, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Let us not think, you know, that there are some of a superior spiritual sort, and they are to watch over the ones who are of an inferior spiritual sort. Every one of us is susceptible. But, the apostle says in the congregation, certainly there are those who are living in accordance with the word of God. They are the spiritual." It is to be hoped that the vast majority of a congregation is living in accordance with the word of God and disciplining themselves. But there may be those who are not disciplining themselves and they are overtaken by a fault. Those of you who are living in accordance with the word of God are to seek to restore such and one in the spirit of meekness. Restore such and one. Now you may say, the second point has to do with how we're to do this, and that sounds like what we are to do. We are to restore such and one. And yet this also has to do with how, because of the meaning of the word restore. That word restore has to do with repairing something and enabling it to function again as it was meant to function. But it's not the repair of a mechanical sort. So that you get into your vehicle and it won't start and you throw up the hood and you get out your pliers and your crescent wrenches and so on. You tap this and you tap that and you diagnose it and you hear the click and you say, I think I have a faulty alternator and you read the manual and you take the alternator out and you put the new alternator and yep, it starts right up. You've done it according to the book. Not what he has in mind, that kind of repair The striking thing about the word beloved is it is of a medical origin. So it has to do with finding a remedy for the one who has fallen into sin and has been overtaken. And even medical of the sort of fixing a broken limb. That's the picture, you see. Someone perhaps is on the ladder in the fall, taking the leaves out of one's gutter, It rained the night before, the soil is soft, one of the legs of the ladder digs in, and there you go, falling from, who knows, 12 feet up, and you land on the ground, maybe the cement, and you break your thigh, your your leg. There you lay. You need assistance. You try to move, and you can hardly move, and you cry for help. And one of the family hears you and comes and now renders assistance. What can that family member do? Well, I'll tell you what the family member can't do. Can't heal that leg. Can't fix your leg. For that, you're going to have to go to a physician. But the family member can help you walk, if you will, and get you to the car so you can get to the physician and the bone can be set and the plaster cast can be put around the leg and the healing can take place so that you can once again be mobile as you once were. And there's the clue, isn't it, what the apostle has in mind with this restoring such and one. We're talking about sin. Do you know, do you know, beloved, who is the physician for the sin sick soul? You know his name, who is the physician for the sin-sick soul and for the one who has been rendered incapable of making spiritual progress, who has been snared by sin and the power of sin. There is a physician, and his name is Christ Jesus, of course. And the calling that the apostle is laying upon the church is, as you know that Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you address your brother who has been a, snared by sin, and bring him to the Lord Jesus, or if you will, bring the Lord Jesus to him by word and by prayer. Because he's the healer, and he's the one in whom power can be found to overcome even the power of sin itself and to set one free from this addiction and that addiction, and who knows what kind of sin in the spirit of meekness says the apostle and one can understand that from various points of view it may be you know it may be that when one goes to address a brother who is snared by this or that sin that brother is not ready to acknowledge this or that sin one is snared by it and finding a certain pleasure in his in denial and As one comes to bring a rebuke and a reproof and a call to repentance, one hears words that are angry words and accusatory words. Who are you to address me? I know about your sins too. I could tell you about your sins too, you know. And maybe words of anger are spoken. And how will one respond? angry words against angry words. If you call me those names, I can call you certain names back. That's not the spirit of meekness, is it? Meekness means one is willing, if need be, to suffer reproof and abuse and still to bring the word in the way of love and in the way of a certain kind of firm gentleness. So the spirit of meekness. But As well, beloved, meekness means this, that you identify yourself with the sinner. It may be, you know, that the man or woman one deals with, it's not in denial and refuses to acknowledge the sin, but it may be a brother who says, I have sinned, I have been so overcome, I don't even know if I'm a child of God anymore. It weighs on me that heavily that it has crushed for me all my hope and expectation. I'm beyond hope. Just leave me, go. And one is in despair. And one must go to him with the word and say, I come to you in the name of Jesus as a sinner speaking to a sinner. Don't you understand, brother? By nature, I'm no different than you are. And yet, the Lord Jesus has saved me and forgiven me my great sins. And if the Lord Jesus has forgiven me and I have found forgiveness with him and healing and wholeness, certainly you are not beyond hope. Maybe you could tell them the parable of the prodigal son reminding him of that scripture and the love of a father for his own in his great compassion. And a man may say, but you committed the same sin And we answer, if it's true, you're right, I did. But I was saved by grace, and Christ found me through a brother, and he talked to me, and he brought me to my senses, and I repented, and I'm forgiven, and I stand before you whole. And now, brother, I will be used by Christ if he is so pleased to do the same with you. In the spirit of meekness, you who are spiritual, And those who are spiritual understand how Christ has graced me, what he has forgiven me. And in that knowledge, let us go together to the foot of the cross and seek forgiveness and wholeness. So one bears one another's burden, and in some ways that means forbearing, and one persists in doing that. And then praise to the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, use the words thou hast spoken through me, to restore this one to wholeness, to repentance, to confession, to turning, and to make spiritual progress once again. Nothing is impossible, Lord, for thy grace, if thou dost so will. And so one seeks to restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering oneself, lest thou also be tempted. How many times beloved in this congregation haven't words from a consistory been read concerning a brother who's under discipline, sometimes not even named, but the sin is indicated in the commandment and then the announcement to the congregation ends with what words? Let he that standeth take heed, lest he also fall. We are all susceptible, and knowing that, beloved, we labor one with another and bring the word. Seeing one who has fallen in sin it's not simply a matter of ignoring that other. It's not simply a matter of criticizing that other. And it certainly isn't simply a matter of condemning that other. He made his bed, let him lay in it. Not my business, and one... Passes him by. Oh, no, says says the apostle. It is your calling as a member of the body of Christ. As Christ ministered to you, you and I must minister one to another. So the question may arise, well, why? Why should we do what this passage requires of us? And, of course, I could answer very simply because it requires it of us. What the Lord Christ says And if the Lord Christ says we are to do this, we better do it. He's the Lord of authority, isn't he? And one could simply say that concerning all the admonitions of the word to the church. It's the word of God. He said, do it. Don't ask why. Do it. And yet God is gracious and he has full authority. And so often he adds incentives to his authority. He doesn't say, I'm God this is my commandment, now get to it. But he adds reasons and incentives. And in some ways I've already given a second reason and has to do with gratitude, doesn't it? As he has done unto me, I will do unto you. Who wrote this epistle? A man named Paul, whose name was once Saul. And how that men, man lived as Saul and what he did to the body of Christ. As a wolf, we read in Acts, as a wolf. He took him into prison, and later he even confesses even to being the cause of death of those whom he imprisoned. And that wasn't just men, beloved, that was women and children as well. I am the chief of sinners, saved by grace. Lord, what wilt thou have me do? Thou art a chosen instrument, Saul of Tarsus. And he went out into the world and preached the gospel and was willing to bear in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And they stoned him and they ripped him. And as they did that, he brought them the gospel with that spirit of meekness. I owe it to my Lord because of what he did for me. And I am willing even to perish in the name of the salvation of my fellow Jews, in light of what Christ has forgiven me and done for me, I will seek to do for him in his name. Gratitude, beloved. Gratitude. But there's another reason, and that's this. The Lord Christ may be well pleased to use the reproofs and the rebukes and the pleadings to return Unto the ways of godliness, and to depart from sin and foolishness, he may use that for the salvation of that soul. I'm going to give you an example. It's, an, it's a story, but it is an historical example. Early in my ministry, there was an older elder who spoke to me about an incident that happened to him when he was a younger elder in another congregation, newly in the office of eldership and there was discipline being carried out. In particular, he and another person were assigned to a young man who was now in college who was old enough to know the doctrine and from a certain point of view old enough to make confession of his faith but had put that off and was pursuing college education and every evidence was that He was wandering from the way. He wasn't as far down the road as the prodigal was as yet, but he was on that road and showing up in church in a very irregular fashion. Enough not to be disowned by his parents and family, but not very often. And the elders called him and they set up an appointment and they went to the young man's House where he was living with a friend. And they knocked on the door. And they heard music playing, he said, and the car was in the parking lot, but no one answered the door. And they knocked again. No answer. And so finally they left. But being elders who were persisting in this, they called the young man again and said, We called you once, you didn't receive us, but we're not going away we'd like to set up an appointment. He said, all right, come. And so they went the second time and the door was opened and they sat down with the young man and they brought the word and they plain to him on what path he had set his feet and what direction he was going and where the end would be if he continued in this way. And they prayed with him and they went home. The next Sunday that young man was in church and he was in church with his friend. And later the elder asked that young man, why did you come back and why did you take your friend? The young man said, after you left, my friend came out of the kitchen and he had been listening to what you told me. And I said to my friend, apologizing, I'm sorry for the intrusion, I don't know if this I'll ever let this happen again. And my young friend, who was of a different denomination, said to me, at least you have some who are concerned about your well-being. I've been gone from church for six months, I haven't received one visit. I don't know if they know I'm alive or dead, and I'm not sure they even care. But you seem to have men who are interested in your well-being and the salvation of your soul. They seem to have a regard for you. I find that rather impressive. And he said it was as as though the lights went on. And I realized where I was heading and where I ought to repent and what I ought to be doing. And I came back to church and he made confession of his faith. And according to what the story is, that other young fellow joined him and made confession likewise. The Lord has a way, you see, knowing his own, of using these reproofs and rebukes and these visits in love and the bringing of his word. Not in every instance, there may be discouragement, but when it comes to the elders, let them not let the hands hang down and knees become feeble in despair. Who knows the word that he will use for the salvation of others and the retrieval of his own. Not only with elders, but with the rest of us as well. And then there is this. And so, fulfill the law of Christ. Notice, it doesn't simply say keep the law of Christ. It says fulfill the law of Christ. That's an interesting way of putting it. He doesn't use keep, I suppose, because one might say, well, then we've kept it perfectly or somehow have earned or merited something by the keeping of the law. He says rather fulfill the law of Christ. And what he is simply saying there is that you are then accomplishing what is at the heart of the law, which has to do with love, and you are accomplishing what Christ intends to accomplish by your following his commandments, that is, being of benefit to others of my body in love for the neighbor and love for the brother. And so one fulfills the law. One accomplishes what's at the heart of the law, being used not only in the interest of one's own salvation, but being used for the benefit of others and the body of Christ. And so... Beloved, one also reflects one's Lord. And is there any higher privilege in the life of a sinner that in some way, small way, we can be used by the Lord Christ and reflect him and be used, beloved, in a saving way as he so graciously has saved us. Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks for the work of the Spirit who brings power to the word. Use it, we pray, in our own hearts and minds for the reality of repentance and the life of conversion, and use us in such a way in the body of Christ to be a benefit one to another and so serve our Lord Christ. We pray in his precious name, amen.